Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Ezra Levin. He's the co-executive director of Indivisible, which aims to cultivate a grassroots movement to elect progressive leaders who realize bold progressive policies and rebuild our democracy. Together with his co-director, Lee Greenberg, he just wrote a book called We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. Before his book is out in November, I wanted to talk to him about what the future is going to look like after this presidency is over. I wondered whether American democracy will still be healthy enough for us to pull it back from the brink of extinction. It turns out that Ezra and his organization are super optimistic. We see the potential of having progressives in charge of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. We see the opportunity to change how the Supreme Court works, how the Senate works, how many states we have in the union, how representative our elections are, how responsive overall these institutions are to the people. That's all within our reach. It's not guaranteed, but it's possible. But that's the democracy we want to build. We'll be talking about how we can reform our democracy to truly reflect the will of the people, the urgency behind eliminating the political stonewalling tactic to block legislation known as the filibuster, and what the stakes are in preserving and strengthening our democracy. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So I really like your subtitle of your book, A Blueprint for Democracy After Trump. What do you envision democracy to be like after he leaves office? I really see there being two possible futures for American democracy. And one is the path that we've been on for quite some time. Uh, What we've seen is that there is a core set of reactionaries out there who look at the same stats that we do. They understand that the country is getting more diverse, more unequal. And so they also understand that their policies are not very popular. And what their policies look like are cutting taxes for the wealthy. It looks like cutting basic social services. It is a libertarian-esque hyper-reactionary policy agenda. And it's an agenda that's currently being pushed by the Trump administration, but not just the Trump administration. It goes back decades. They're the ones that are standing against voting rights. They're the ones that are standing against approaches to rein in gerrymandering, systematically trying to dismantle democracy and do it in a way that makes it less responsive to that increasingly diverse, increasingly unequal electorate. It's a a cynically effective move because they know that their agenda won't succeed if we have a democracy that actually represents all the people. And that's the path we've been on. But it's not an inevitable destination for our democracy. We see at Indivisible another possibility of changing American democracy. So it doesn't just have the same 18th and 19th century structural elements that it's had for so many years, that it actually is reformed to reflect the will of the people. And by the people, we mean all the people, this changing electorate. And we see that being possible as soon as 2021. We see the potential of having progressives in charge of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. We see the opportunity to change how the Supreme Court works, how the Senate works, how many states we have in the union, how representative our elections are, how responsive overall these institutions are to the people. That's all within our reach. It's not guaranteed, but it's possible. But that's the democracy we want to build. 
you mentioned just now about the 18th and 19th century construct of democracy in this country. And can you explain what that is so that you can put that in contrast with the democracy that you envision as soon as 2021? I think a, a good feature of our democracy to focus on is is the Senate. The Senate was created explicitly to put power in the hands of small states and not populous states. In the next 20 years, 70% of the population, which is the more progressive 70%, is going to live in just 13 states. They're concentrating in 13 states. That means they'll have 26 senators, uh, a very small proportion of senators, whereas the 30% of the population that is more conservative is going to live in 37 states. So they're going to have 74 senators. That's the challenge that we're facing. In the near term, the Senate could turn conservative almost permanently as a result of that fundamental demographic shift that is occurring right now. Now, what we know is that there's nothing in the Constitution that says that we should have 50 states in the union. And there's been a, a multi-decade campaign, for instance, to admit D.C. as a state. It has a larger population than Wyoming. That's not going to fix all of our problems with the Senate, but it will make the Senate a little bit more responsive to the people. So let's assume that Washington becomes a state. What are the other things that need to happen with that as well in order to really have a representative democracy in terms of the Senate alone? I mean, in terms of the Senate alone, there's another feature of our existing democracy that actually isn't baked into our 18th century structure, it wasn't really popularized until late in the 19th century. And it, it's something called the filibuster. What it allows a small number of senators to do is to block popular legislation. It means that practically anything of substance legislatively going through the Senate has to get 60 votes, not just a mere majority. The impact of that falls particularly hard on progressives. Originally, the filibuster was popularized in the late 1800s and then through the mid-1900s to block civil rights legislation by Southern Dixiecrats and segregationists. So they blocked civil rights legislation, voting rights legislation, anti-lynching legislation successfully for decades and decades by wielding the power of the minority to stop popular legislation. Today, that power is used for pretty much everything. So Mitch McConnell, who is the current Senate Majority Leader on the Republican side, has promised to be, and these are his words, the grim reaper of progressive legislation. If he loses the Senate next year and in 2021 is simply Senate Minority Leader, he can still be the Grim Reaper as long as the filibuster exists. With just 41 votes, he can kill any sort of pro-democracy legislation, and we know he will because he's told us that. Earlier this year, the House of Representatives passed a pretty bold, progressive, pro-democracy reform bill called the For the People Act included campaign finance provisions, election security provisions, voting rights provisions. And Mitch McConnell stood on the floor of the Senate and called it socialism and a power grab. He understands that pro-democracy reforms are a threat to his power. And so he will do everything in his own power to prevent it from happening. And if the filibuster exists in 2021, he will use that in order to sink both pro-democracy legislation and also just about any social and economic reforms the Democrats might want to get through. The good news about the filibuster, the reason why we're talking about it now, is it, it's possible to change it. And in fact, it's been changed multiple times 
over the past several years and decades. Mitch McConnell himself eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. That's how he allowed Donald Trump to appoint two Supreme Court justices with fewer than 60 votes. So in 2021, should Democrats have the political will, they actually have the ability through simple majority vote to eliminate the filibuster. If we are going to get this democracy reform package through, if we are actually going to make American democracy responsive to the people, that's a choice they've got to make. And it's important right now to get presidential candidates on the record, to get Senate candidates on the record. We'll have roughly a year to pass substantive legislation before the next election kicks off. And so talking about the filibuster now is important, even though it's wonky, even though it's nerdy, even though it kind of seems like it's in the weeds. It's actually a fundamental barrier to all the progress we want to achieve. I love the wonky stuff. (laughs) That's why I have this show. (laughs) But uh, explain to us, what are the stakes in preserving and strengthening American democracy? So if we succeed with the filibuster, what does that actually do for the American public? What it means is that we have a democracy that is more responsive, reflective, representative of the people. And that doesn't mean that progressives are always going to win. It certainly doesn't mean that Democrats are always going to win. I think one concern that we hear from many folks who are progressive like us about eliminating the filibuster is simple. It's, well, that that sounds great, but what's going to happen when Republicans gain control again. What happens when they get the Senate, the House, and the presidency? Aren't they going to do more bad stuff? Aren't they going to implement their own agenda? And, you know, I have three responses to that. One, I would say Mitch McConnell has repeatedly shown a willingness to demolish norms if they stand in his way. The Republican Party, that as it currently exists, has backed him up on that. And so that's how we got elimination of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. So far, under President Trump, the Republicans have not been able to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which was their top legislative priority, even though they tried to do it through reconciliation, a process that only requires 50 votes. So the filibuster didn't stand in their way. Their own members stood in their way. Second, I don't think we should eliminate the filibuster for any old legislation. I think the way that we'll actually end up eliminating the filibuster is on January 3rd of 2021, The new Democratic Congress will introduce a bold new package of democracy reforms. On January 20th of 2021, the new Democratic president will give a soaring speech about the the possibilities of America and the, the potential for reform. In the House of Representatives, they will pass with flying colors a For the People Act on steroids, a, a great democracy reform package. It will then come before the Senate. And the Senate will say, we want to pass this wildly popular pro-democracy bill. And then Mitch McConnell or some doppelganger similarly funded by the Koch brothers will say, no, we're filibustering that. And that's when Democrats will face a choice. And the choice in front of them will be whether or not to give them a veto or not over that pro-democracy legislation. But if they choose to eliminate the filibuster and pass that pro-democracy bill, they're not just eliminating the filibuster for the sake of eliminating the filibuster. They are eliminating it in order to make democracy more responsive. And that brings us to actually responding to those concerns we hear from some progressives because Republicans may gain control of the reins of power again. But when they do, the power that they have will be more constrained by the will of the people. And as progressives, we can't dictate what future people are going to choose our legislation to look like, but we can 
ensure that the rules of the game are stacked in the people's favor. And currently they are not. So as a progressive, I have a faith that our ideas are better. I have a faith that our policies are more popular and that they will win if the game is fair. And we've got to set up a game that is fair and trust that the people are going to provide for themselves. How can Indivisible get us there? Yeah, so you mentioned that we're writing a book right now, and it's about the Indivisible movement and the power that it's built over the last two and a half years. It's also about democracy. It's about the threats to our democracy and, as we've been discussing, the kind of democracy that we want to build. I should note that we're not taking a dime of the money from the book. All of the advance and any royalties that would be going to the authors is going to Indivisible. This is about, about the movement and investing in the movement. One of the stories that we've learned from doing research on this book is a story that's about 40 years old. President Carter came into office in January 1977, and he came into office at a time when reform was in the air. This is, recall, after Watergate, after Nixon, after Vice President Agnew had been driven from office. He came in with huge majorities in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. He came in at a time of crisis for American democracy, where there was a question of what we could do to build ourselves out of the destruction that had occurred over the past several years. And one of the first big policy proposals Carter makes upon coming in office, this is March of 1977, is this really monumental pro-democracy reform package. It includes eliminating the Electoral College. It includes campaign finance reform provisions. It includes voting rights election security, really just a a really incredible package of reforms, none of it ever gets a vote. It dies in the Senate, gets filibustered in the Senate. By the Republicans? Yep. The Republican National Committee comes out and calls it a power grab. You might remember that language from what Mitch McConnell said a few months ago. Uh, So the, the Republicans understood 40 years ago that this kind of reform was an existential threat to their power. They were fighting the same fights against it 42 years ago that they were fighting against it a few months ago, and not just the same fight, but using the same language. So we know what's going to happen in 2021 should Democrats actually prioritize democracy. They will be criticized as socialists. They will be criticized as power grabbers. And there will be a concerted effort from the other side to prevent a democratic bill that puts power in the hands of the people. The difference between 2021 and 1977, or the difference we want there to be, is in 1977, there was no grassroots movement demanding democracy reform legislation. And we think that can be different in 2021. Indivisibles, we have polled, we have surveyed, we have talked to all across the country. And when we ask them, what is your top priority? What do you want to see the new president put as their number one legislation? What do you want to see federal leaders lead on? They care about everything. They care about health care and abortion rights and immigration and environment and education, you name it. But when we ask them to prioritize the number one priority for indivisible groups all across the country, blue states, red states, purple states, is saving American democracy. I get this question all over the country when I travel. I was in Prescott, Arizona. That's where Barry Goldwater launched his 1964 presidential campaign, a very conservative area. I spoke to 30 or 40 indivisible groups, uh, group members there. And the first question I got was about automatic voter registration. I was in upstate New York, a couple hours outside of Syracuse in deep red Trump country. First question I get is about 
well, Republicans have appointed 15 of the last 19 Supreme Court justices. What are we going to do about that? It doesn't matter where I travel. Democracy issues are the first thing that comes up. We've talked about the For the People Act. Uh, that's the H.R. 1, as it's known. It's the first bill that the House Democrats introduced this year. On January 3rd of this year, Indivisible held what turned out to be its single largest national day of action in our two-plus year history, showing up at more congressional district offices in more states than literally we had ever had before in support of the For the People Act. They succeeded in ensuring that that bill didn't just stay as strong as it was when it was introduced, but it was actually strengthened over the course of the amendment process. That's what we need to see again in 2021, because if we get the Democratic candidate as strong as possible on democracy issues, that's great. If we win the House, the Senate, and the presidency, that's necessary. But none of that's enough. The only way we're going to change our democracy is if we participate in our democracy. And that's what Indivisible is building. Yes, I agree. We need to participate in our democracy. You started Indivisible basically with a Google Doc that was shared. And I actually remember receiving it right after the election. How were you able to transform to a physical movement and having a record number of people show up at this National Day of Action? Well, let me say, it's just, it's as much a surprise to us as it is to you. It was not our intent. And I think that's one of the, the strengths of the movement. We had seen the success of the Tea Party. And though we disagreed with the Tea Party's racism and its violence, we thought it was really smart about strategy and tactics. They knew how to focus locally. They knew how to organize small groups locally. They knew how to get earned media to pressure their elected officials. They knew how to resist. And so we put out the guide inspired in some small part by them. First of all, normally when you put your political manifesto about saving democracy on the internet, nothing happens. And I think that's what more or less we expected. Immediately, we started hearing from people all over the country. Uh, and by immediately, I mean that night. Well, first of all, they all said, this document is full of typos. But then the next thing they said was, I got a dozen of my friends together and we're indivisible Syracuse or we're indivisible East Tennessee or we're indivisible Seattle. And we started hearing this from all over the country. And then they were asking us, we're meeting next Saturday. What should we discuss? What should we be talking to our member of Congress about? Lee and I pulled together a couple dozen people over to our living room to try to manage this inflow of communications and figure out how we could best respond to this movement. After having 100 or so volunteers get involved in the effort we ultimately set up a national organization, a nonprofit, to support that movement. And Indivisible National, the reason why Indivisible, the organization, exists is explicitly to support Indivisible, the movement. The magic of this is that individual people all over the country in communities, red, blue, and purple, are taking it upon themselves to actually own and lead this. And so our role in all this is relatively minor. Our role is to provide strategic advice, to help coordinate, to help educate and to be led by these leaders on the ground. That's the thing that sustains this. That's what allows the energy to not dissipate, but to actually build on itself. And that's what we're committed to continue to use as our model for, for growing. In fact, Indivisible is precisely the blueprint for an inclusive democracy in a sense that you just provide support and the local people take initiative and run with it. Since you started with the Google Doc, it's been two and a half years. 
how has Indivisible evolved? I'd say that there's the evolution of Indivisible, the organization and the evolution of Indivisible, the movement, and they're related because they've both grown at the same time. As I mentioned, we started in our living room with a whole bunch of volunteers, and now we're a Indivisible National is a full-fledged national organization. We have state lead organizers spread around the country. We have a staff of over 70 full-time folks who are working on the political advocacy, organizing communications, data issues that confront the movement. And the Indivisible movement itself has grown and become more capable and expert in a variety of different issues over the course of the last two and a half years. The Indivisible Guide was purely about congressional advocacy. But this funny thing happens when you pull together a dozen or 50 or a couple of hundred of people in a room together to talk about how to pressure their member of Congress. And pretty soon, they start talking about their governor, or they start talking about their mayor, or they start talking about their city council person or their school board rep. They start looking around themselves and trying to figure out, well, what else can we fix? And that's what we've seen with the Indivisible Movement, that it started in response to Trump very explicitly. People were looking to figure out what to do in response to this threat. But it became something much more than that. It became a network of locally organized communities that were dedicated to civic engagement at the most basic level. And that's been amazing to see because the diversity of actions across the country has been astonishing from groups that started pushing against the repeal of the Affordable Care Act to rallying behind movement for black lives groups working to take down Confederate monuments, rallying around DACA recipients who are under threat either at the national level or through state action. The groups have focused on where they can have the most impact. And in 2017 and 2018, that was largely a mix of advocacy playing defense against the worst coming out of this administration, in some cases at the state level. And in 2018, focused on how do we take back power? How do we build the wave? And in 2019, where we've seen the big shift is from being a purely defensive movement, saying no to the worst out of this administration, to evolving into this affirmative, proactive movement. And this is where that surveying and focus grouping and and polling that I mentioned before comes into play. When we ask them, what do you want to be proactive about? They tell us they want to be proactive about democracy. So there's been this evolution from a resistance movement, from an anti-Trump movement into a pro-democracy movement. So tell me, is the book that you're writing now essentially a direct product of that evolution from resistance to being a pro-democracy movement. It is, and that's that's intentional. It's not always obvious to individuals across the country how they can actually impact national debate, how they can be part of the solution. And individuals are doing that every day. They're not just taking direction. They're actually building power. They're building communities in groups of 10, 20, 50, 100, 1,000. Nobody tapped them on the shoulder. They took Indivisible as a platform and they built on it. And so we explain exactly what that has looked like. And we draw out specific lessons. How have the groups built up these communities? How have they applied their power by pressuring the electeds? How have they thought about their tactics? How have they avoided becoming boring? How have they got earned media? All of the details 
are where you learn these lessons about how power actually works in American democracy and how you can use it. That's about half the book. And then the other half of the book is about this evolution and about identifying what are the sources of the problems we face in American democracy right now? And what are the solutions to fix it? And Indivisible is not a think tank. We're a people power movement and a movement organization. And so to, to write these chapters of the book, we talked to the indivisible groups about what they cared about. And then we talked to a lot of the experts. We talked to the advocates and the academics and the think tankers. We're under no illusions that we can wave a magic wand. We're not going to pass a constitutional amendment in 2021, but we can pass legislation. That's something we can do. Let's think as big as our problems are. And what are the solutions that can rise to the level of the problems we face? And that's what's in the book. We propose how to fix the Senate, the House, the media, voting rights, Supreme Court. Not just a way to defeat Trump, but how do we build a real representative democracy that actually responds to the will of the people? If I want to get engaged and I'm not a member of a local indivisible chapter, let's say, what are two things that I can do as a private individual to move the needle? We always have ways to get involved individually. But I will say that in a representative democracy, power flows from the people and groups of people have more power. So we would say there is no single more important action that you can take than to get involved locally by joining or creating your own local group. If you're hearing this and you live in the United States, there is a group in your area you may not want to join that group, and that's fine. That's not how this works. Get a dozen of your friends together or your family members together and create a new indivisible group. That is literally how all of these groups began. So I would encourage you to go to indivisible.org. We've got a map uh, where you can find other indivisible groups, or you can feel free to start your indivisible group, or you can just sign up for our notices. And that includes Based on the zip code that you give us, here's a, an event happy in your area that's being led by a local indivisible group. If you want to show up, here's how you can be part of it. You are super passionate. What is the source of your passion? My background is in anti-poverty advocacy, actually. I started working on homelessness issues about 10 years ago, right after college. I then went to Capitol Hill to work on kind of domestic social policy and anti-poverty issues for a few years. Went to grad school to study poverty issues and then came back and was working for an anti-poverty nonprofit doing advocacy work. So that that's my entire background. I kind of come from the wonky advocacy side of this space and not the grassroots organizing side of this space. And after doing that for about a decade, working on poverty and inequality issues, the real conclusion I've come to is that when it comes to this issue that I care so much about... The problem isn't that we don't have the information we need. The problem isn't that we don't know the policies that will be effective. The problem is the political will and the way that our institutions are structured. And when I talk to indivisible members and people who are on staff, that's more or less the same problem facing everybody else. And so I think that nothing else will solve the, the problems that ail our society unless we first get this right. And that's why I'm dedicated to it. I think the only solution to democracy is people getting involved and indivisible at its heart is based on this really shouldn't be radical, but is somewhat radical notion that in a representative democracy, your representatives ought to represent you. 
and it's not that much more complicated. And so indivisible groups are building up the structures that they need in order to realize that radical vision to ensure that their representatives are actually representing them. I totally agree. Last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is that every single week we get new indivisible groups who are joining up, new people coming into the movement. And I will say, as dark as things are right now, I think back to November and December of 2016, we had just lost the House, Senate, and Presidency. It was really, really dark. What we saw in that moment were new people who had never been engaged before starting to get engaged. Not only did we defeat the, literally the top legislative priority of this unified conservative government, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, not only did we turn the, the one legislative accomplishment, the, the tax bill, into a political liability, we built an enormous historic blue wave that retook the House, took nearly 400 state legislative seats, created six new trifecta states at the state level and seven new Democratic governors. That was impossible two years earlier. It was inconceivable. And we changed that. I don't think saving American democracy is inconceivable. I see a pathway to victory in 2021. It's not guaranteed. We're going to get the rest of the progressive community aligned around the importance of democracy reform. We're going to win in 2020. And then in 2021, after that January 20th inaugural address from that new Democratic president, we're going to demand that they enact this pro-democracy reform. I see that happening. Here, here. What you just explained in terms of turning around the election results from 2016 really is a testament, I think, to the American people and their desire to have a functioning and representative democracy. Thank you very much, Ezra. Thanks so much for having me on. Ezra's optimism is infectious. I love that he has the proof from his surveys and from feedback from local indivisible groups that democracy reform is a priority for Americans. Yay! I have to admit that I laughed when he said that normally when you put out your political manifesto, nothing happens. The fact that people reached out right away is, in my mind, the real evidence that Americans want their democracy to work. This conversation reminded me of some of what Matt Jones said last week on our show about past opportunities for reform that were not taken up. Congress considered a bill on regulating data privacy more strictly by non-government actors in the 1970s. Today, we need to seize the chance to demand more transparency and accountability about our data. And we're seeing this now with democracy reform, the same elements of the pro-democracy bill from the Carter years are being put forward again. And this time, it's possible that Congress will, as long as we elect the people who believe in this, sign the For the People Act into law and build a real representative democracy that does respond to the will of the people. More than anything else, I heard this message loud and clear, and it bears repeating. The only way we're going to change our democracy is if we participate in our democracy. Thank you for listening to the season of Future Hindsight. We'll be taking a short break while we record our new season on the forces that support democracy. And in the meantime, we'll be dropping micro episodes on the background of how and why the podcast was started. Tune in. 
Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.